please stand for the reading of God's word from Nehemiah 13. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. I, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God and with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and asked and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of uh, my God and for his service. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish of all kinds of, and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons, or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse from them uh, from e- thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Thank you, Sean, and good morning again. Uh, We are this morning uh, concluding our series in the book of Nehemiah that we've been calling A Time to Rebuild. Uh, Maybe it feels like it's been ages for you. Maybe it feels like it's gone quickly. Uh, But here we are wrapping up today the series that's been about the efforts to rebuild the ruined city of Jerusalem that had laid vulnerable and broken down for some 140 years prior to the time that Nehemiah leads this effort to bring it back. Uh, It was a time of seeking to repent and to rebuild. And we've been talking all through this series about how it's also a time for us Uh, individually, as a church, as a society, to rebuild through the many things that we have gone through. And our hope is that through this series, we would start to see ways that we personally might start to rebuild, ways that we as a church might start thinking about rebuilding. But it is in no way presuming that because we are closing chapter 13 today and setting down Nehemiah, that the rebuilding is done or really even started. Right, So I have no presumption. I don't want you to have the presumption of like, got it, nailed it, done. Right, Like we, we finished our rebuilding, we're past that. No, in any way, this, this is meant to give us a blueprint for how we rebuild our own lives going forward, for how we rebuild our spiritual lives, for how we rebuild our community here following a pandemic when we were so isolated, following a pastoral transition, following a transition from being a network of churches to just our churches. These things give us step stones that we can start using for moving forward. So I don't want us to close the book today and think we are done. We are going to move on starting next week into our Advent series as we tie in with the Christian calendar to anticipate the coming of Christ. But for now, I just want to note for us that my hope is that we will continue to rebuild, that we will grow from here, that we will continue to look back even to what we've learned for ourselves and for our church through Nehemiah on how we can grow and become a vibrant community in the Christian life, that we can be a refuge for people who don't know God, that, that we ourselves here might come to know God in a deeper way. 
And the last half of this book has been pivoting from just those rebuilding of the walls, the external rebuilding that needed to happen, towards the internal rebuilding that needed to happen for the people as well, so that they might come back in a true and authentic way to being the real people of God, to being a genuine expression of what it looks like to know a God of power and grace. Last time we looked at the people uh, being put back together and how that was starting to turn them to look forward to what they might be for others, to what God might be doing in their lives, not just for them, not just for their city, but for the people around them. Yet today we're going to see that despite the victories and deliverance in this book, it closes with a bit of a whimper, right? This is not a triumphant, yes, stage freeze, cut to black, and then everyone is just rejoicing. This is kind of a, huh? Why is there not an act four? Why is the story ending now? It almost has a little bit of that modern theater kind of feel to it where you're left wondering, is this a commentary on my life? What's happening? I don't understand. There, there's a bit of confusion. It, it kind of hits an arc and then it, it pauses uh, as the people seem to downward spiral yet again into sin and walking away from God, just as they did prior to the exile, just as they've done a couple times through our book. They are not, at the end of this book, a people who are spiritually rebuilt. The city is done. They are not. Despite all their promises in chapter 10 of what they were going to do, the new kind of community that they were going to be, all of Nehemiah's work, it shows us that something somehow is still deeply lacking in this community. And the message of this chapter through that seems to unavoidably be that rebuilding Jerusalem, external programs would not fix an internal problem of the people. Rebuilding the walls would not fix their hearts. It needed to be done. It was good and important, but it would not fix something that was even more important. Something more would be needed to do that. And the same is really true for us, that if we rebuild, say, the, the programs, we get new vision and mission for CTK here, that that in and of itself will not fix what's going on in here. That if I get into new devotional life practices, I start joining community groups, I'm in Bible studies, the external things in and of themselves will not fix what is going on on the inside. Something more is needed than just programs. We need a bigger hope that we can give ourselves, and the text points to that hope, and we're going to look at three things that lead us towards that. We're going to look at where the people start, where the people stumble, and then hope for God's people. So where the people start, where they stumble, and hope for God's people. And before we get into that, would you bow your heads and pray with me as we ask God to fill up our time once more. Father, thank you that we've been able to be at prayer so many times this morning as we are reminded that you are the one that we really seek, that you are the God who hears prayer, that we can bring the entirety of our lives to you, that you will listen and answer, that it's actually you who is moving in us to pray, to bring our hearts to you now. And so we bring our hearts before you as you bring your word to us speaking first. Would you give us, Holy Spirit, a heart of response? Would you give us a heart of humility that hears what we need to hear? Would you give us a heart of courage that needs to be bold and strong? Would you strengthen us in all the ways that we are weak? Would you bear us up where we are tired? Would you just be the God that we need you to be in all the ways that we need you? Pray that you would show up this morning for each and every soul that's here this morning. In your name we pray. 
Amen. So if you have your Bibles, feel free to have those open. If you don't have one, there should be one in the pew in front of you, or you can use a a Bible app or just listen along. But we're going to work back through parts of the text. It's a big text. There are so many things that I would love to get to here, but I'm not going to have time to. Uh, But starting out at where the people start uh, at this kind of anticlimactic unwinding, uh, it starts actually with a bit of a promising start again. Verses 1 through 3, if you look back there, uh, the people are gathered again to hear God's word. Uh, and they hear particularly from Deuteronomy 23, and they are moved to action by what they hear, as they have been. If you remember going back to chapter 8, they hear selections also likely from the book of Deuteronomy, other parts of the first five books of Scripture, and they are moved in their hearts to respond to God. This is a good thing. This is an evidence of God's work in their lives, and they, they do something concrete. They separate themselves from a few uh, people groups, and we're going to talk more about the significance of this. They separate from the Ammonites, the Moabites, and generally those who were not born of Israel, foreigners in their midst, those that says are not of the assembly. That's the people of God. Uh, They do that not, it seems, by breaking up any families, because we're going to talk about there were uh, relationships across uh, faith communities here. They don't seem to do that by breaking up families, but by separating during sacred gatherings, by separating themselves out for worship, to come before God as his people. And this separation serves as a sort of summary as to what's going to happen in this passage, at least of what they are called to do. And the passage kind of almost works backwards. You know, some of those movies start with a scene and then flash back and say three years earlier and move all the way forward. Chapter 13 is doing some of that as well. It's kind of giving us what hopefully will happen. But what we can see is in reality, things break down. That even with the best promises, things don't always go the way that we would want them to go. That we still have brokenness. But in a nutshell, let's think about why are the people called to do this? Why do they have a response to separate? And how is that in any way, shape, or form a positive response? Are they called to separate simply because the Ammonites and Moabites were of a different race, a different ethnicity than the people of Israel, and God thinks that mixing races is wrong? No. A hundred percent, no. A thousand percent, no, that is not correct and has never been and never will be biblically true. Though some people have sinfully and mistakenly down through the ages argued that it is the way things ought to be. That is not God's picture. That is not the picture we ultimately see him painting in the book of Revelation where every tribe, nation, and tongue is gathered together as the one redeemed people of God, praising and worshiping him as a whole integral people. That is not what is going on here. The text tells us, rather, quoting Deuteronomy 23, that this separation was called for because not of who the Ammonites and Moabites were by their skin, by their birth, but by what they had done. It was about their heart, not the color of their skin or their genealogy. Scripture says that we as humans are prone to judge by outward appearances, but God judges by the heart. And what was ultimately in their hearts, what ultimately led them to be cruel to God's people so many centuries before, was a worship of false gods, a love of something that is not the God of the universe that would make them hate others that might 
oh, lost it, others that might intrude on that love. The danger then, the cause for Israel to separate itself, for God's people to do that, was that the people would take on the practices and beliefs of the people around them who had no knowledge of God, who had no love of God. The problem was not being with them. The problem was being like them. That they would assimilate into the surrounding peoples and that their light, the light of who God is, the revelation of his grace and glory and goodness and power would slowly fade from view. This is what the rest of the passage shows us happens when people assimilate to the world around them. The light goes out. People struggle to see who God really is. Remember, we've been talking about the rebuilding of Jerusalem is all about having this city on a hill where people can come and see what God is like, where they can learn about what life with him truly looks like. And if they are not distinctive in showing what God has given them for life, then little by little, there will be nothing left to show. And the city would just break down again internally long before it breaks down externally. And this is where Nehemiah returns to the story again as this internal breakdown is starting to happen. So let's look then at our second point where the people start to stumble. So when Nehemiah returns to Israel after some time away, we're not sure exactly how long, he initially finds the people stumbling in a pretty isolated way. But by the end of the chapter, he's going to find out that they are stumbling and spiraling out of control in every corner of life that he can possibly find. They're going back on seemingly each and every promise they made in chapter 10 right before he left. So the problem then starts small, but it has big implications. And the same is true with sin in our lives, that the problem starts small. It seems like a tiny compromise, a small thing, but the text shows us a greater unraveling and unwinding when things start to go off course. The problem starts small in the temple. And as we're going to see, when something goes wrong in the temple, in our, our most intimate connection to God, when something is off there, things will be off everywhere else. If things are off in the temple where we meet with God, it has a ripple effect through the rest of our communities. When that relationship is off, everything else is off. What do we see happening here in verses 4 through 9? Eliashib, a priest, has let one of his relatives, Tobiah, who has been a consistent enemy of the people of God from day one all the way through chapter 13, he has let this enemy of the people of God live in the temple of God. He hasn't pushed him farther away. He said, Come, can I make room for you, please? Could you be in the most special place that anyone could possibly be? in the place that was supposed to be where the resources for the worship of God, the resources for making God known, were kept to keep this city as a vibrant place of worship. And now an enemy of God's people lives in that place. This is a stunning reversal. This is supposed to be a place that is facilitating the worship of God, and instead it is filled with one person who cares nothing for God. 
Nehemiah recognizes this as a problem, moves quickly to solve it. He kicks Tobiah out and he purifies the temple. But this is not something that Nehemiah should have had to do. Eliashib is a priest, one of many priests who would know or should be familiar with God's ways, what God has called them to do. It was the job of priests to preserve the work and the worship of God, but no one said no to this. No one said, this is a bad idea, you can't do this. Because, it seems, they were already assimilating. And if the priests, whose job it was to show the people most intimately what life with God is like, if the priests were assimilating, what hope do the rest of the people have for retaining true worship? If myself and the elders and the diaconate would start going away from who God is and start leading you all away from who God is, who Scripture says him, teaches us that he is, how would we expect the rest of things to go for you all? As those of us who have put more time, more commitment, more energy, who are supposed to know God in a deeper way to be called into these offices, into these works, how would it go for the rest of us? There is a responsibility upon us as leaders to be faithful, to be walking in faithfulness. There was a responsibility on these priests to be walking in faithfulness, but instead they were assimilating. This is a massive problem. It seems small, but it has huge implications. This is like finding cancer in the lungs or the liver. This is extremely bad. It could be small, but it is only a terrible thing to be found there. Nehemiah recognizes that this is a problem and tries to address it, but is going to quickly find as we go through the text that the problem has spread. In verses 10 through 14, he discovers that the Levites and the singers, those who, who keep up the temple and who lead the worship of God's people, have not received the financial support that they were supposed to receive to do what they need to do. Their ministry budget was set at X. They received nothing. There is no support for them to do the work that they've been called to do. Presumably, because this room is empty, that was supposed to be where they kept all the resources, the people just stopped giving resources. There was nothing to put in there. So it was empty, not because they moved things out, but because no one had put anything in. So there's room for Tobiah to stay in the place that used to hold these tithes. It's not seemingly that the people were unable. The text doesn't talk about a new famine coming in or some threat coming in. It's just that they were unwilling. They, they would have rather spent on themselves. And it seems they had the resources to give. They just didn't give them because later Nehemiah is going to say, you need to start giving again. And all of a sudden, there are the resources. They had them. They just didn't want to give them. Worship is declining. Compromise is setting in, assimilation is happening, and the light, the distinctiveness of who God is, what life with him is like, is getting dimmer. It keeps going. In verses 15 to 22, we see what was a location-specific problem, what was happening just in the temple, is now a city-wide problem. People are working, people are buying and selling on the Sabbath. They're conducting business. These are people who are supposed to be witnesses to the God who gives rest. That formerly they had been an enslaved people and slaves have no day off, taking them out of slavery in Egypt. One of the first things God does is give them one whole day of rest. 
And here they start to say, no big deal. We can go back to slavery. We can go back to working 24-7, seven days a week. We don't need rest. They're witness to the surrounding people of who God is, that God is a God who gives rest, who is enough, who lets you have enough, that you don't have to work your fingers to the bone. The surrounding people lose that witness. They're given no sense that God is a God of rest through the way that they have assimilated to the culture around them. The light gets dimmer. And in verses 23 to 29, what was once just a once-a-week problem, though citywide, is now an everyday problem through marriage outside the community of faith. A point where perhaps you would face the greatest struggle against assimilation at home. And this has become a widespread problem, which Nehemiah reacts very strongly to. Uh, he, is, he is doing almost a prophetic act in here and showing people physically what has become true of them spiritually. If you go back to 2 Samuel, it was a shame to take out someone's beard. And then the same way Nehemiah is shaming, showing these people what has become true internally, what they don't seem to see externally. And he makes them swear not to do any further marrying of this kind. It doesn't seem he makes anyone get a divorce. But he recognizes that this is a danger, that those of the people don't see any problem. Nehemiah recognizes a problem. And I want to be sensitive to this. Because I know there are some of us here and some of even our friends and family who are married to non-believers. And you as a non-believing spouse even may be here today. And I would call you, if you are the spouse of someone who believes but you do not, to hear the invitation that this text subtly leans us to give to come and find a God who gives rest amidst a world that is continually running us ragged. To humble yourself and say, maybe, maybe there's something that I haven't understood yet. Maybe there's something that I haven't seen yet. Maybe there is a limit to me that I don't know that would be helpful for me to know. Maybe there's something about who God really is that I haven't seen yet. Would you come? I invite you. I, I implore you to come with some curiosity. See who God really is. Maybe even despite our witness, despite the fact that his people don't always look like him. I would say to those who are married to non-believers here that Paul calls us to remain as we are if our non-believing spouse would remain with us. So I would encourage you, we would love to support you, to honor the commitment that you have made as far as it depends on you and to let God's grace shine through that commitment. But Nehemiah highlights the difficulty, the danger of marrying outside the faith of assimilating our hearts to things around us, not just for how hard it is to live in it, but even for its impact on those around us. Sin is always out to get not just us, but even others. It's trying to warn you not about the difficulty of marrying people who aren't like you. That's not a problem. That's actually a help. 
right? It's not warning about marrying against people from a different race. We've already said that's not the problem. God has no difficulty with that. It's about the heart condition. Are we wedding ourselves, even in a literal sense, but we can also do this even if we're not married. We can become deeply bonded to folks who are not believers. Not to say that we should not have deep and true friendships with others, but are we becoming drawn out into the ways of the world and losing the distinctiveness that God has given us? Do our actions say that who God is is not that significant in our lives? That he is interchangeable? That in the same way I might say that I deeply love competitive mountain climbing, you could say I deeply hate competitive mountain climbing. And that could be fine. But in in some sense we might say that with our lives, with our friendships, that we don't make God central to our lives. We'll let other things be the center and those other things always in some way, shape, or form will let us down and will let others down. And here we see the children of these marriages as an example of some of, of the difficulty that comes through these things because half of the children of those married to non-believers, it says, no longer knew how to speak the language of faith at that time, which was Hebrew. The, some of the parents... The men in particular, they were the ones who were uh, of the community of faith, did not share that with them. They assimilated. It was of no consequence to them whether their children would ever know how to hear the language of God. And if things kept going that way, within a few generations, it's highly possible that only a handful of people might speak the language of God, that the light would continually get dimmer. Nehemiah reacts so strongly to all this from top to bottom because it is an unraveling of the city of the people of God. Quickly, the light is fading. It's painful. It's devastating for him to see that the world is losing its light again. And the reality is this happens to me. This happens to you too. We all fall back into old sins. We are all still like Paul in Romans 7, fighting our old ways, trying to get past these things. We fall into new sins. We assimilate even after rebuilding, even after times of spiritual revival, our light fades. So I think it's important for us to ask that that part of rebuilding is continually asking, am I assimilating? That doesn't mean, am I completely cutting myself off? That's not what we're saying. Jerusalem was meant to be a place where others could come and know God. We need to maintain our connections, even grow our connections to those who do not know Jesus. But the question is, are we showing them the light of who God is and inviting them into that? Or are we falling away from the light and letting others lose that as well? Because I want to suggest that we will fall away in some of the exact same ways that Israel did. We will be tempted to devote our money more to ourselves. The people stopped giving to the work of God. We will be tempted to be self-centered, to spend on what makes us feel good, always first and foremost. We will be tempted to use our brokenness in one area, as the people did, not supporting God's work, the room was empty, to justify compromise in other areas, letting someone who doesn't care about God live in the temple. Breakdown leads to more breakdown. We will give up on more of God's ways and be tempted to do that when we have already passed over some others. Sort of like, what's the big deal? I've already opened the sleeve of Tate's cookies. I've had two. Why not just eat the whole sleeve, right? I can get an amen on that. I know someone's there with me. 
right? This is what happens. We compromise. When some things start to break, we fall farther away. We're going to be tempted likewise not just to, to compromise in one area, but to not rest. Ours is not a culture built around rest. We're going to be tempted to not take a break, to never break the cycle of everyday life and to return to the story of who God is in worship and rest, just as the people did not stop working, buying, and selling on the Sabbath. We're going to keep working day in and day out. We're not going to take time off when we need to take time off. We're not going to take time off when we should and stop. We're going to keep scrolling. (laughs) We're never going to be present with people. We're going to keep watching, keep running, keep searching for fulfillment in all the same old things that still have not brought us fulfillment. We're going to be tempted to do things we think we can handle, we think that won't lead us that far away from God, such as people did here, binding themselves to others that didn't believe in God in various ways. But we will subtly, yet powerfully, be drawn away from God and face what is actually much more of a challenge than we thought it would be. We will start to love things, even people, in a way where that love will cause us to question or compromise on our love for God. And that love is meant to pour us back out into others, to be better people, to be more caring people, more selfless people, more self-sacrificing people. But they will loop back in on themselves. We will become more self-centered and selfish, not more giving and caring And again, it's not that we don't care for or befriend or shouldn't deeply love folks who do not know Jesus, but are we showing them anything that would be of value? Are we showing them anything different? Do we ever speak about who Jesus has been for us, about what it means to have a clear conscience when your conscience is just constantly dogging you for how terrible you feel yourself to be? What is it to wash up against the grace of Jesus Christ that would say, you are forgiven? Are we showing a light of something different? Because these aren't just things that they struggled with back then. The text doesn't let us get off that easy. They're what we struggle with. And it can feel pretty hopeless when we recognize that these are all the same things that we do. But the text, I think, actually wants us to feel that a little bit. Wants to drive us to just a sense of, I can't do this on my own. It's not working with just me. It can't be my ability. I need something more. I have to have a different hope. And that's what leads us to our last point, the hope of God's people amidst this unraveling. The passage shows us that the people's promises were not enough. We see them already broken down. We see Nehemiah wasn't enough. It's not just their promises. It's not just a good leader. They are wandering away, even under the best circumstances. Something more than good circumstances, something more than promises, something more than a good leader to point them in the right direction was going to be necessary for them. The community of faith, then and now, needs someone that could always not just tell them the right way, but save them, put them on the right path who could actually change their hearts. But the text leaves us with a bit of a question about who could do that. Nehemiah doesn't say. He just knows that God has to intervene. 
He trusts that God will. That's why he's praying constantly through this passage, God, please show up. Please do something. I can't do this. And some 500 years later, God would hear that prayer. He would intervene. He would remember Nehemiah for good. He would send his eternal son, Jesus Christ, who would always catch us when we fall, who would always save us from ourselves, who would never leave us alone. Even when we are walking away from him, he will chase us down. Jesus is the greater hope that we need. He is like Nehemiah, a leader who came back for his people, leaving the king's court and the comfort of that to come to a city and a people with a nice exterior but a broken down interior. And yet differently than Nehemiah, he knew our corruption more fully and yet let himself be broken down for our brokenness. It wasn't that he was deceived and he didn't understand. He didn't see what Nehemiah saw. He saw more than what Nehemiah saw and he did more than what Nehemiah could do. He took the beatings himself rather than letting those things come upon us. He took the shame of what we had become on ourselves rather than letting that be our final home and destiny. He did what Nehemiah couldn't do in taking our place as those who just constantly walk away from God, taking our wandering into himself and nailing it to the cross that there it might die with him. that our death would be put to death in him and that our life would come to life in his resurrection. It was ultimately not his showing us the way, but his being the way. His being left alone, crying out to the Father to remember him, just as Nehemiah cried out, but God did not intervene for him so that instead he would intervene for you and I. This is the hope we need, the hope that they longed for, that Nehemiah longed for, someone who can fix the brokenness that's within, someone who can look back when we stare in the mirror and only see frustration and shame and bitterness, who can transform what we can't transform, who can give us newness, wholeness, who can rebuild our hearts. God is a God who does not beat you down, but who takes the beating for you that you might be lifted up, not because you deserved it, not because you ever will have to deserve it, but just because he loves broken, messed up people who have been broken and messed up for centuries and ages. Do you know that promise this morning? Do you know a God who loves you like that, not at your best, but even at your worst? I pray that you would. I want to give you three practical things following this that I hope that we can do this more concretely to help us know God in this way, to have this hope for us. And the first is to ask, to ask that Jesus would be the one to save me from me, be the one to see what I can't see, to bring me rest when I am just so tired of constantly striving, to give me an appetite for something more when all I am doing is settling for ashes that I'm shoving into my mouth. Ask Jesus, if you don't know him, to be the one that would save you. Or ask simply, if I do know him, where am I assimilating and robbing others from knowing who God is? Be honest about that. Open yourself up to someone else that knows you well. Let it be rooted out in you. 
because this is going to be a continual process, that these are things we have to address time and again. We are going to constantly be, these people are, we still are, a people that continually wander away and need to be brought back. But God is happy to bring you back. So look to Him. Ask, where am I wandering away and may be brought back? Second, prioritize. Prioritize Christian community and the worship of God through His Word. We see through our text that the people's falling away started at the temple. That when things went wrong with their relationship to God, everything else started to slowly unravel. So don't miss time with God. Don't miss letting Him speak back into your life through His Word. Don't miss reading a psalm for five minutes if you can. Don't miss being here on Sunday if you can help it. Don't miss being at, at a community group, at a Bible study, at whatever it is. Don't miss opportunities. I'm not saying run yourself ragged and never stop working, but fine, let your heart be open to ways that God might come and speak with you. Because it's having ourselves anchored in who God is in community that can turn us back to life when we've been wandering away. Sometimes we need a Nehemiah in our lives to say, you are just walking away. Sometimes we need someone to do that. I would ask that we be open to that in community and to finally know, ask, prioritize, know, know that your spiritual rebuilding, your coming back from walking away from God, ultimately rests not in your hands, but in God's hands. Left to ourselves, we will always fall away. But you are not left to yourself. You have a greater Nehemiah now in Jesus Christ who has entered all the way in, who has taken all the brokenness on, who has let himself be beaten and killed that you might be raised up from all the ways that you are unraveling. You can't do the rebuilding on your own. Please do not try. God did not mean for you to try. He meant for him to finish it. And in Christ it is finished. May we trust in him. Let's pray. I invite you to take a few moments to pray, speak to God in your heart about the things we've just discussed, to maybe thank Him for, for giving you the love that you have in Him and Jesus Christ, a love that sees you as you are. Confess maybe the ways that, that we've let our light fade, that we haven't really cared, that we've compromised, that we've, we've not rested, we've not shown others who God is because we've stopped learning. Maybe ask God to save you from yourself in the ways that, that you are walking away from him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your son who has saved us knowing exactly who we are and we need you to keep bringing us home. And we're so glad that you have promised that you will always do that. So we ask that you would just come and do that now as we seek to rebuild as individuals, as a people, would you come and rebuild us on the firm foundation that is you. In your son's name we pray, amen.